hostility toward Christianity and Christians in general, even, uh, sadly, even in our Western cultures, and of course New Zealand would be included in the Western culture, and if you look at the stats in books, magazines, online, it's, it's staggering, really, as, I, as I've been thinking about this. Uh, let me just give you some stats. According to opendoorsusa.org, every month, and by the way, this is, this is a conservative stat. This is on the low end. Uh, they, they say that every month 322 Christians are killed, uh, 214 church buildings are destroyed, and 772 acts of violence are committed against Christians. Uh, this violence, by the way, includes things like the beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, imprisonment, and even forced marriages. The World Watch Monitor calculates, and this is, this is a little higher number, but they, they calculated that 4,344 Christians were uh, quote, killed for faith-related reasons in just the year 2014 alone. Which, by the way, it's interesting, if you look at the stats, it doubled from 2013, and it tripled from 2012. So you can see that the, the suffering and the persecution of Christians is, is growing by huge bounds. And according to the Pew Research Center, over 75% of the world's population lives in areas with severe religious restrictions. And you'll see a PowerPoint slide here of, of our world where, uh, by the way, the red uh, extreme persecution is the red areas, which I, I was looking at this is a little different from the Voice of the Martyr map, which is on the back of the door in that cupboard there. It's a little bit different, but for the most part it's similar. So you see where the extreme areas of religious persecution are. There's a few in Africa and, of course, much of the Middle East. And then there's other places in Asia like North Korea. And they, they list uh, the countries in order of, of the, the worst persecution to the, to the least. Top five countries, by the way, with extreme persecution. Number one, yet again this year, is North Korea. Number two was Somalia which is on that northeast side of Africa. Uh, that's, that's where a lot of those pirates come from who uh, do their evil, wicked deeds. But anyway, number three this year is Iraq, thanks to ISIS. Number four, Syria. Again, a lot of that has to do with ISIS. But, uh, and then number five, Afghanistan. Uh, that makes out the top five. Uh, interesting enough, three of those top five countries are in the Middle East. Uh, their targeted attacks have, have what I've been reading, it says they emptied many religion or regions of Christians. That's according to Open Doors, a ministry in the States. Many fled from the advance of the Islamic State. We, we saw that if we've watched the news at all. We've seen that in the year 2014. In fact, the stats show that more than 75 or 70 percent of the Christians in Iraq have left the country. Somebody jokingly said, would the last Christian please turn the lights out? Hope it doesn't get that bad. Uh, but then, just up in Syria, not far from Iraq, there's 700,000 Christians have, have left Syria since the year 2011. That's according to Open Doors. 
So believers have long, ever since first century, time of Christ, and even before then, suffered. Believers in the first century were living in the Roman Empire, and they were facing the, the same kind of evil that, that we see happening in the church today. But they often faced it more frequently, more, more open hostility and persecution, than certainly than, than we do in our Western culture. However, in some parts of the world, of course, there's, there is direct persecution of believers, particularly in those extremely persecuted countries. And it is likely that it is coming our way in the years to come if Jesus Christ should not return this year, which, by the way, it wouldn't surprise me if he does. Uh, the way this world is going, uh, Christ's return is probably soon. But Christians are going to face increasing hostility. We, you can see it. Uh, I hear about it happening in my own home, home country of the United States of America. It's certainly happening in other places like England and Canada, and it's growing even in New Zealand. So this Bible passage that Peter's sharing with us here is, is very helpful because he is speaking to Christians, to believers in Jesus Christ who are suffering. And this Bible passage is speaking to all, by the way, who would live godly in a world that is hostile and ungodly. And so it's important that we listen to what the Apostle Peter says as he's giving this Holy Spirit-inspired uh, advice and counsel. And I'll remind you that he was a martyr. He understood persecution. He was living amongst people, and he himself was imprisoned as well for his faith and preaching about Jesus. So he understands. He was, he's been there. He's, he's done that, writing to people who are going through suffering. So let's have a read of our passage in 1 Peter 3 starting in verse 13. Verse 13, Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's just go to Lord in, in prayer for a moment. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these uh, Holy Spirit-inspired words that you've given to us. Uh, we believe that this is your word. We believe it's inspired and, and it is accurate. It is faithful. It is relevant and helpful to us. It is everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from this, this particular passage here. We ask for the Holy Spirit to be gracious to us, to to, to come work in us through your word. And we ask that our hearts will be inclined to your word, and we want to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. May we know how to live in a hostile world that uh, does not love Jesus and does not love your word. May we know how to live in a way that brings you honor and glory. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've got a series of questions. We'll just go through the text together and and just bring out some of the, the highlights of the text. My first question comes from verse 13, and it's a question that, that Peter is alluding to in his rhetorical question. Is it natural for good people to suffer? Is it natural for good people to suffer? In other words, for people who, who do good, is it natural for them to suffer? Well, Peter says... A rhetorical question, which doesn't, a rhetorical question, remember, is one that has an obvious answer. Because Peter says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And the answer is, well, no. The obvious answer is that it's actually unexpected for good people to suffer. But there is a qualification, though, that needs to be met here. Okay, there is a qualification. See, your, your life will actually determine the outcome. Your life will determine the outcome. Being zealous for that which is good is some assurance that God will protect Christians from evil. Notice I said some assurance. It is not a 100% thing, and that's why Peter writes the next verse. And so the condition is not, by the way, an occasional good deed here. We're, we're talking, Peter's talking about something that is a lifestyle. It's a continuous thing. It's in fact, it's an eagerness to constantly do good. Peter says, those who meet that qualification will most likely not suffer. But notice the very next word of verse 14, because Peter knows reality. Here's the reality in verse 14, that often Christians do suffer. And so my next question for you is this, can you then be blessed for suffering? Is it possible to be blessed for suffering? Well, look what Peter says here in verse 14. Because he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. <laughs> so the answer is yes, you will be blessed. And, and again, notice verse 14 starts with that word, but. The word but is marking a contrast to what you just read in verse 13. Why? Why is there this contrast? Because Peter knew that when you are aggressively doing good, you're involved in well-doing, that is not always going to disarm the persecutor. Some persecutors will actually even get more angry, more ramped up in their, their hatred of Jesus. And so it suggests a possibility, but not a certainty. However, if suffering is your lot... Notice the Bible does here say that you are blessed. You are blessed. In other words, your sufferings will contribute to spiritual well-being. It's going to foster a blessedness that's going to reach beyond this life into the life to come. Therefore, Christians should not be fearful. You shouldn't be despairing. But instead, we ought to reckon ourselves highly privileged to suffer for Jesus' sake. In fact, Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5. He said, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Well, if that is God's will for us to suffer, how are we going to respond? How should a Christian respond to suffering? Well, that's the next little bit that Peter answers for us here. 
how should Christians suffer? Well, I like the way this Christian suffered for his faith. Let me tell you a little story. I don't know the man's name, but years ago there was a wicked king who commanded a Christian to recant and to give up Christ. And the king said, if you don't, I will banish you. The Christian said, you cannot banish me from Christ. For Christ said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Then I will confiscate your property, the king angrily threatened. My treasures are laid up in heaven. You cannot touch them, the Christian replied. I will kill you, the king shouted with even greater anger. But the Christian quietly answered, I have been dead in Christ to this world for 40 years. My life is hid with Christ in God. You cannot touch it. And the king turned to the members of his court and said in disgust, What can you do with such a fanatic? End quote. In the age in which we live, it demands this kind of a response from Christians to live with fanatical zeal for Jesus Christ. And sadly, the world is destroying itself. It is on a path of destruction. And we must have Christians that are wholly consecrated to God with this one supreme ambition to make Christ known to this world. That's who they need to know. Well, Peter gives several proper ways to respond, but he also gives some negative responses that we should not do in and in, in, in we'll see this in the text. But So let's look at the negative ones that Peter mentions here on how not to respond to suffering, and then we'll look at the positive responses. So first of all, look at these negative ones. In verse 14, Peter says that Christians should not yield to fear. Christians should not yield to fear, because at the end of verse 14, he says, have no fear of them. Don't, don't fear the persecutors, those who oppress you. Christians should not allow this feeling of fright and terror to to grip them. One Christian martyr that comes to my mind, whom I've appreciated over the years, is Polycarp. If you're not familiar with Polycarp, you go back in church history and read about him. An amazing man who was, as far as we know, a disciple of the Apostle John. You know, Apostle John was the last of the the, the living of the apostles. And so, so he... He discipled Polycarp, and Polycarp became uh, the pastor in Smyrna, which, by the way, is in modern-day Turkey. One day, Polycarp was hunted down by these godless persecutors. They tried every known means to get him to blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But with unshakable courage, here's, as far as we know, these are Polycarp's words. He says, I quote, "...86 years I have served my Lord, and he has been my truest friend." How then can I blaspheme him who shed his blood to wash away my sin? At the execution scene, which this is someone's drawing on the screen here of that execution scene, the soldiers began to secure him to the stake, but Polycarp stopped them. He said, Leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the bonfire unmoved without the security you desire from nails. And he prayed, and the fire was lit. And before his body was reduced to ashes, even unbelievers 
saw the peace in his eyes and his whole body's demeanor and and of course his soul went to be with Jesus Christ. The Bible says absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, there's a desperate need in the church today for men like Polycarp. Even in the midst of their suffering, they're they understand the fruit of the Spirit. It's lived out in their lives. They have that love, joy, and peace. He was a fearless man who was willing to stand for Jesus Christ at all cost. He feared God and God alone. And that's the way it should be. Jesus said it should be that way. For example, look what Jesus says here in Matthew 10, verse 28. These are Jesus' words. Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So that's the first negative that Peter says. Don't don't fear. But second of all, in verse 14, Christians should not be troubled. Don't be troubled. We see that in verse 14 as well. Not only did he say, have no fear of them, but he says, nor be troubled. The word troubled there means to shake up or agitate. It's it's kind of like, have you ever uh, had some water and in, in some sort of a, a container of some sorts and you wanted to, you, if you added something to the water, you want it to be mixed in the water? And what do you do? Sometimes you, you'll, you'll shake that water up, right? To, to mix the sugar or the coffee or tea or whatever, chocolate is, is there. You'll, you'll agitate that water and shake it so it's thoroughly distributed in the water. And that's the word troubled here. Something that is sharply jarred and agitated, shaken up. It, it conveys the picture of confusion even here. And so the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, don't be agitated. Don't be confused. Be firm in your stance. Don't be shaken about like, like Milo in a, in a, in a, in a glass. <laughs> okay? So don't be troubled. Don't fear. But what does Peter tell us to do? Positively speaking, in verse 15, there's a few things he says here. First of all, he says that Christians must keep Christ central and supreme in their lives. If you look at verse 15, it says, but. Again, showing that contrast from the two negative things. Don't fear, don't be troubled, but what are you to do in your hearts? Honor Christ the Lord as holy. By the way, you'll see uh, on the the next slide here, uh, this was one of these things when I was taught to preach, you do, you you, you take a text of Scripture and you you break it down into its parts. And you'll see on the screen, it's not up there. Okay, I I thought it was up there. Anyway, uh, in verse 15 we have a command. What are we commanded to do according to verse 15? The command is you are to honor Christ. That's the command. It's not an option. And by the way, the word honor here means to treat as holy, unique, distinct from everything else. You are setting it apart, enshrining Christ as the object of your supreme devotion and worship and adoration. So in the midst of suffering, that is what Christians must do. Christ must be set above all other allegiances. After all, here 
this is a command. It's not an option. And notice Peter tells us where Christ is to be honored. Because unlike idols, you don't set Christ up in a little cubby hole or on some pedestal or, or some other place. No, notice Christ is honored in your hearts. You see that in verse 15? That phrase, by the way, specifies the inner sanctuary where Christ is to be enthroned. He is to be worshipped as sovereign of all. His supremacy must begin in the heart, in that innermost part of your being. Why is that? Because Scripture makes it clear in places like Proverbs and other places. It's in that heart, in your inner being, that everything is going to flow from there. What you say, you think and do, it's coming from the heart. Well, how is Christ to be honored? Well, Peter answers that question too. Because if you look at verse 15, he says, as the Holy Lord. Now, why is, why is, that, whole, why is that important that we honor and set Christ apart as Holy Lord? Well, you think about it. When Christ is Lord... What kind of a confidence is that going to give to Christians? How is that going to affect a Christian? Christians are going to have the grace, will have the strength to stand firm in the midst of our suffering. Next, Peter says that Christians must always be ready to defend their hope. Did you notice that? That's what Peter says. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You should always be prepared, he says. Never unprepared, never unwilling, never timid, never shy. You must respond when someone comes and, and questions the faith, questions your hope. When they have a question about the gospel, you must be prepared to make a defense. And the only way you'll be able to do that is you've got to make your faith a first-hand thing as opposed to a, just a second-hand thing. It's, it's, not a, it's not a thing you know, out there. It's something that is you. Well, this is where the word apologetics comes from, coming from verse 15 here. And by the way, I, I've put on the screen here, you want to, if you're not sure what apologetics is, apologetics has the idea of your... You're defending the truth. You're defending the truth. And if you were to fill in the blank of this next sentence, this will really show what is your apologetic. So fill in the blank. All right, This will define what your apologetic is. All right, So here's the sentence. Christianity is true because you fill in the blank. In your minds, in your hearts. The answer to that, whatever you fill in the blank with, will determine what is your apologetic. Now, I'll just be up front with you. My apologetic is what is called presuppositional apologetics. The idea is I'm presupposing things. I already believe in my mind that Scripture is true. This is the Word of God. God has written this. This is the truth. Jesus said so. Jesus said so. He said, this word is truth. And of course, I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, my apologetic is based on this truth. I believe this is truth. Therefore, I'm going to use this truth 
when I make a defense of this hope that is in me. That's called presuppositional apologetics. Whereas their traditional apologetics, they, they try to use man's wisdom and argue from, from reasoning outside of the Bible. Okay, So I'm just telling you where I'm coming from here. And I, I hope you can see in the text here that is the proper way to do it. So, so you fill in a blank there. That will determine what your apologetic is. And, and you say, where does that word come from? It comes from that phrase... Uh, which you'll see up on the next screen here. I've underlined it for you. To make a defense. In the English, that phrase there, make a defense, is the Greek word apologia. We get the English word apologetics. So making a defense. And, And I've underlined also for you the command. The only command in that passage is that you are to honor Christ. How do you honor Christ? Well, that's all the other stuff underneath it, okay? Verses 15 and 16 and 17 tell you how you can honor Christ. Now, this is how I was taught, one of the ways I was taught to study the Bible and preach the Bible. And so, uh, if you're wondering why there's indentations there, if you see something indented, it just means it's subservient and pointing to the one above it, okay? So, you'll notice the one to the farthest left is the command. The only command in that scripture there is, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. How do you do that? Well, Peter tells us how to do that. All those other things, all those other lines you see in verses 15 and 16 tell you how to obey the command. And by the way, uh, one, one reason for the confusion and controversy over Christian apologetics is a failure to keep the context of 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, it's often ripped right out of its context. And you know the context by now, don't you, I hope? It's suffering. It's suffering. So let's just uh, make a few points from our text here. Number one, the apologia here is a mandate. This making a defense is a mandate for all Christians. Now that's important because a lot of traditional apologists say that no, making this defense, this uh, being, you know, this apology is is just for the Christians who who are smart enough, who have the intelligence to to go to the new atheists, guys like Richard Dawkins, and, and to be able to debate them in public. And if you can't do that, then don't don't do this. That's what they say. Or this is for those who've been philosophically trained. There's one traditional apologist who's got multiple PhDs. And and this is one of the things he says. He says, don't use the scriptures. You need to be very intelligent, philosophically trained like me to be able to do this. And then some would say, well, you know, maybe this is for the pastors or the professors, the scholars of this world. Uh, You know, leave leave it to us professional apologists. Really? Well, that's not what Peter says. That's not what the Holy Spirit says. There is nothing in this text that even suggests or hints at it's only for those who have multiple PhDs or somehow are smart enough to be able to do this. This is for every Christian. Every Christian must do this. Number two, the apology is directed toward all unbelievers. And I say that because some people think, no, you know, it's, it, this, this, is, this is only for formal debates 
where you're going against that famous atheist or the guy who's an agnostic. So only in those kind of settings is, is this passage applying to. Wrong. Wrong. This is a continuous thing throughout your life. In, in, in fact, Peter says, always. Look at verse 15. He says, always being prepared to make a defense. It's not just in formal settings where, you know, where the TV cameras are on you. No. Always. So the church is to do this whenever, whoever. It doesn't matter if it's informal or formal. It doesn't matter if this person is inside the church. By the way, I'm using church in a very general sense there because there are believers who are attending, unbelievers who attend church services. So it includes those who are outside as well as inside the professing Christian church. So we're not just talking about the the atheist or the agnostics here. Okay? And so this is important because on the whole, I would say the church has let its guard down. And we shouldn't. We need to wake up. After all, the Bible tells us and exhorts us to do so. Let me just give you two examples. In 1 John 4, verse 1, it says, uh, this is what John says, he says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. He's not talking about ghosts or that sort of thing there. He's he's talking about people predominantly, or, or the systems of beliefs even. Test them. Don't just let them wander by unchallenged as if they're all true. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 20, he said, guard what was committed to your trust. Guard it. It's precious. Don't let these these unbelievers just come in and steal it and rob it and destroy it. Number three, the apologia, this, this defense, is grounded in the Old Testament. It's inseparably connected to the gospel, in fact, it's, it's not something that's just scriptureless human reasoning. And that's important to know because, again, many good, well-meaning, even godly people, some of these, these men I highly respect, and I, and I don't even really want to say their names because I, in Christ I love them, and God has used them in my life. But they're coming from this traditional apologetic professional apologist view where we don't use the scriptures to reason with people and that's wrong because our text here is actually uh, going all the way back to isaiah chapter 8 you can look at your cross references in your bible and read those on your own but this is something grounded in the old testament it's grounded in the gospel it's not scriptureless about, by the way, what is the hope in you? That's what the text says. You're to make a defense of this and give an answer of the hope that is in you. What is that? Well, certainly referring to the gospel. Uh, bare minimum, at least, referring to the gospel. And so it's important that we don't reason toward the Scriptures, but we reason from the Scriptures. This is the truth. This is the power that we have. We have no power in our in our man's wisdom. So apologetics, you please understand, is not just a defense, it's also something positive. It's a promotion of the gospel. It's what 
evangelists do. So our apologia is to be from Scripture, using the Scripture. It's not apart from the Scripture. It's not independent of God's revelation. And we could look at several examples. Jesus did this. That's why you constantly hear Jesus saying, it is written, it is written. What's he doing? He's grounding his apologetic in the Old Testament Scriptures. The Apostle Paul does this. When he's, when he's witnessing for Jesus Christ, uh, in fact, in Acts, don't turn there, but in Acts 17, Paul said it was his custom. It was his regular thing to do, he says, to reason from the Scriptures. Well, if that's what Jesus did and Paul did and, and other people in Scripture did, then so should we. So our apologia is something that's a negative defense of the gospel, but at the same time it's a positive promotion of the gospel. We've already talked about the command, but let me remind you here that the apologia is a consistently Christ-ruled one. It's consistently Christ-ruled, and we see that in the word honor. It's the only verb in the text, and it is a command. It's in the imperative in the Greek. And so what are we to do here? We're to set apart Christ as a holy Lord. So our apologies should be in a way that's consistently reflecting the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is the source. He is the starting point. He is the consistency. He is the follow-through here. He is the all. Sadly, many traditional apologists, though, will go to human philosophies and reasoning to try to show that God exists and so forth. Next, we see the apology is connected with a godly life. It's not separated from a godly life, but the godly life is backing up the truth that we're to be proclaiming. It's pretty clear in verse the end of verse 15. Look at it here. Because it says, Do this with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. Okay, there's, there's three points that Peter makes there. Let's just quickly talk about those. The three points that Peter says showing this godly life is the gentleness and respect and a good conscience. So how, how are you to make this defense? How are you to suffer, if you will, with gentleness and respect, keeping a good conscience? By the way, gentleness here is not seeking to overpower your opponent with your verboseness or the power of your reasoning. It, and it, it, that, that's one pendulum swing. And some people think, wow, because this word's often used meekness, which some people think as weakness. No. It's power under control, just like Jesus. <laughs> the one who created the universe had power under control when he was here on this earth. He could have just destroyed people, but he didn't. It, this, this gentleness here is not an attitude of arrogant antagonism where you just go around purposely trying to make as many people as angry as possible. That is not what apologetics is. The opposite of gentleness. And it's not a haughty superiority going around thinking, I'm better than everybody else. That's not gentleness. So what is it? Well, it's an inner strength of meekness. Again, power under control. That word was used of, of horses, wild horses who 
might be out of control, but at some point were brought under the control of a master so that they were now useful. You might think of it like nuclear energy, right? That might be another way of looking at it. Nuclear energy out of control is incredibly dangerous. We saw that in World War II, atomic bombs being dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, Japan, destroying entire cities, and tens of thousands of people's lives were destroyed and buildings were destroyed. The power of nuclear fusion when you start dividing up atoms and crashing them into one another and stuff, is amazing. But when you use that and put it in a, in a controlled environment, it can be useful. It can create energy. It can run ships and submarines and houses. That's the idea here. It's, it's an inner strength. It's, the gentleness is a personal modesty and genuine humility. When, when it's mixed with radiant hope, it's going to make for a winsome testimony. People are going to look at this and say, wow, what is the hope that that man and that woman has? That's what God wants. So it's connected with a godly life. So it's gentle, but notice the next word, it's respect as well. Respect, by the way, is not the fear of men that's going to cause you to be shy and timid and reclusive and just go hide in a corner and ignore people. That's not what the Bible's talking about here. Respect is a reverence. It's a caution. Reverence because you understand just how serious your subject is. You understand how important the gospel and how important Jesus is to this world. But there's also a caution lest you say something that you will regret. You ever been in a witnessing situation? Sadly, I've been in many over the years where... I recognize just how serious my subject matter is. I'm talking about Jesus. But at the same time, I find myself speaking in the flesh sometimes to an unbeliever, and I find myself the frustration building in them as they continually suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and my flesh rises up within me, and I start getting fleshly, responding in unbiblical, ungodly ways. But this is something that we need to be aware of. It, respect is, comes with a caution. I mean, why, why is that even important? You say, well, you don't want to bring disrepute on God nor His truth. Because when you and I start responding to unbelievers with disrespect, we might start calling them names. We might start getting a little frustrated at their, their suppression of the truth. In the process, we're not giving the right opinion of God. We're not glorifying God, are we? Peter says that our apology is backed up by a godly life. He says you're to show gentleness, you're to show respect. But notice in verse 16, Peter says you're to have a good conscience. A good conscience. The idea here is this is something that's morally right in your word, deed, and your attitude. Morally right. And this is important because when you actually have a good conscience, you then are able to face any opponent and you can do it effectively. You can defend the truth because despite the fact they're going to throw mud at you, you are the Teflon person. You're the Teflon person, the unstickable, if you will. They're going to throw mud at you, but you are blameless. The mud doesn't stick. 
Because they're looking at your life and they see a godly life. That's the idea. You say this, this good conscience. What, what are we talking about here? Let me illustrate it this way. What's the function of a skylight? You all know what a skylight is, I hope. Skylights are, well, there's one right above us here. Okay, you can look up there. That's a bad example of one. On the screen is a good example of a skylight. Skylights are, are windows. Often you'll see them, right, on the roof of some building, letting in light. That is their function, to let light in. But what happens if you neglect that skylight or you cover a skylight? And in this case, up here, apparently they tried to spray paint the skylight. What happens? Well, they had a purpose in doing that, didn't they? Because they want to be able to see the screen so that their PowerPoint presentations or videos showing from the projector can be seen because the light coming in through the skylight will hide the screen. And so if you neglect it or purposely cover it, the room's going to go dark. And guess what? That's a good illustration because the conscience functions like a skylight. Conscience, God's given you a conscience to function like that, that skylight, letting the light in. It does not produce light. There, there's no switch to a skylight that's going to let the, you know, say, hey, you know, like the light switch. No. So it merely lets moral light in. And because of that, we must keep our conscience clear, or else what's going to happen is our moral light's then going to go out. You can actually sear and wound and scar your conscience to where it doesn't work effectively. Therefore, apologetics is not solely about what we say. Peter clearly says here, it's also about how you live. The godly life must go hand in hand, working together with what you say. So apologetics is holistic, if you will. It's a, it's a lifestyle. It's not just something that's an intellectual exercise where you, you get up in a formal uh, situation and debate the agnostic or atheist. It's a lifestyle. And why else, by the way, would they ask you for what is in you if it isn't a lifestyle? Hopefully the idea is they're looking at you and they're seeing Christ in you, the hope of glory, and say, what is it that you have? I want that. I want Christ. That's, that's the goal here. So, as we move on to verse 16, we also see the apologia has an impact on opponents. It has an impact. Peter says so. When you read on in verse 16, it says, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. By the word, by the way, you look at verse 16, those words, so that, introduce something. Whenever you see so that, in at least in the ESV, it's introducing something. It's saying, hey, look, there's some, there's some information coming here you need to know. And, the, and it's introducing the, uh, the expected result of the defense that you see in verse 15. And so although the antagonists are not always going to be silenced, the persecutors will not always stop persecuting. Something is going to be accomplished, though. Even in the midst of the persecution and suffering, something will be accomplished. And notice what Scripture says 
It says they will be put to shame. They will be put to shame. Now, they may not act like it on the outward appearance, but if you actually believe these are Holy Spirit-inspired words, and I do, I believe that every time a Christian is persecuted, and they are, they are doing it with, with a godly life, backing up with their godly life, the persecutor is put to shame inwardly. Because that's what Scripture says. In other words, they're humiliated. And, and in fact, many of the Muslims, and even people within ISIS, who go and persecute Christians, and do their dastardly, evil, wicked deeds, are coming to Jesus Christ. They are being humiliated. They are being put to shame. They, they see Christ in these believers. Why? Well, why does this happen? How can it happen? It's because of your good behavior in Christ. That's how it's going to happen. It's, it's your life. You've heard it said that sometimes the only Bible that someone's going to read is your life. And, and that's certainly what Peter's talking about here. Your life is going to display God, hopefully. And hopefully it's going to be an accurate, faithful representation. Well, one more question that Peter answers for us here. Is there any hope? Is there any assurance for those of us who will be slandered? Peter says we will be. He doesn't say you might be. In verse 16, he says, when you are slandered, there's no if, buts, maybes here. When you are slandered, is there any assurance that God gives to those who suffer? Well, there's good news because there's verse 17. And Peter says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Did you notice that? that I find that comforting in verse 17. That Peter says, sometimes it's God's will for you to suffer. God's will for you to suffer. We don't know why God does everything He does. And I would be foolish to even try to, to even attempt to know the mind of God on everything, because I don't. That's not even possible. But I can trust in God in what He has revealed in Scripture. And this I can trust in. Now that phrase in verse 17, it is better, indicates the contrast between the, con the two conditions of suffering. Of course, neither kind of suffering is pleasant. Okay, uh, We all know that, right? Uh, no suffering is, is pleasant. And there is certainly significant difference in, in the two kind here. Notice Peter says there's suffering for well-doing and there's suffering for just being stupid or sinful, right? So suffering for well-doing is certainly better, and I'll give you at least two reasons, okay? Number one, it, it's it, suffering for well-doing is better because you're actually in fellowship with Jesus Christ. You're experiencing this fellowship with Jesus Christ that you will never experience in any other way. Number two, it's better because it actually may silent the opponent. Or better yet, it may actually change his mind in regard to his sin, and God will use that to bring him to repentance in Christ. The word if, by the way, shows us that such suffering is unlikely. However, we know that many Christians do suffer, and when this kind of suffering does happen, we can be encouraged by the fact that it's not just blind chance, it's, it's not just your so-called destiny 
Uh, it's not an accident, but it is God's will for your life. After all, who's in control? Is Satan in control? Are you in control? Is this world in control? Or is there some, you know, nebulous force out there that's in control? No, none of those are all wrong answers. God is sovereign. God is the one who reigns supreme over all of his creation. And if you don't believe that, read Job. God was in control the whole time even over Satan. And so if God permits suffering, then it must be for our good and for His glory. must be. Because that's why God does everything. And we we know that uh, all committed Christians can believe in Romans chapter 8 and that it is still in the Bible and it is still true. You know Romans 8, 28, I hope. It's a wonderful passage. It says, we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, there's conditions that go with the truth that all things work together for good. Obviously, it's only for Christians that all things work together for good. These are people who love God. These are people who are called according to His purpose. So it is only for the Christians that all things work together for good. So clearly, suffering for well-doing is vastly better than suffering for evil-doing. Peter's making that clear. And so if a believer suffers because of a sin, then guess what? That's just a hard road. (laughs) There is no merit when you suffer for your sin. In fact, you're only getting what you deserve, really. And so, my friend, please listen. Adversity is a reality. Suffering and persecution is a reality in this world. Jesus said so. He said, if I suffer, you will. So suffering is, at the same time, though, it's a, we need to understand it's a spiritual privilege for us as believers. And we need to trust in a sovereign God as we go through the suffering. And that's good news that God is, suffer, is sovereign, that God is in control, and that When I do suffer, hopefully it's because of God's will and not for my own sinfulness. And so when you realize that God is sovereign, then you're going to be able to accept your suffering as a part of God's plan for you. You, You'll be able to see, okay, God's choosing something here for my good and His glory. I will rejoice in this. And that's what exactly what Jesus says in some of Jesus' words in Scripture. And I want you to take heed of this, my friends. Look what Jesus says. Here's where we're going to end today. I can't think of a better way to end than with Jesus' words. He says this in Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Look what Jesus says. He answers the why. He says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 